Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hour. Thank you again for the opportunity we have to meet here this morning in your house to hear your word taught and preached. And thank you for the opportunity we have to sing these praises to you. Now we pray your blessing on John as he preaches your word. May you anoint him with your spirit, give him power, grace from on high, and may he preach your word with boldness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to everyone. I've enjoyed what we've <clears throat> heard so far in Sunday school. Um, they say you can study the Bible your whole life and still not fully understand it. And I don't know if that was God's intention or not, but there's a lot of things that I look forward to someday knowing uh, the ins and outs of the details. Uh, we discussed some of that in class this morning. Uh, how did all this stuff happen? We don't know. And we are kind of left to speculate, kind of left to wonder. Um, but someday, I trust we will know all of that completely. And that's a little bit what my um, sermon this morning again, some of the things we don't know completely. As the regulars here know, I've spent the last three sermons focusing on uh, women who are mentioned in the Bible. And as I've said before, there's very few mentioned. Um, and the ones that are, there's only about 1%. They only comprise about 1% of the entire uh, words that were spoken. So again, I'm sure a lot more was said that we don't know um, that we can find out someday. So we are kind of left to wonder, speculate about these ladies' lives, what they thought, what they said, their struggles, uh, their weaknesses, their strengths. Um, the ones that are recorded, I found, are not that much different than the ones that we have among us today. Um, they had different areas, uh, but they lived in a different, a different era. They had a vastly different culture, and there's much that we can learn from them. So I focused on women from the Old Testament last time. I want to look briefly today at um, women from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they had, it was very different, a very different culture back then. Sometimes we, we read the Old Testament um, we attempt to understand it, and it's very difficult because the entire culture was just extremely different. Am I too close, Lance? Sorry. Okay. Very different back then. So after the flood, uh, lifespans quickly dropped from hundreds of years to similar to what we would have known today. Uh, 80 or 90 years was considered old, um, just like it still is today. And however, studies from that time, or from that, yeah, would have indicated lifespans were probably more around 30 to 40 years, which is, means I'm getting old here. Uh, young men died in their prime from war. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands died in battle. Women died in childbirth. And there were a lot of diseases that uh, a lot of children, babies, infants died from disease. So there was a, it was very, very different than we know um, even in the, the culture that they lived in back then. But the coming of Christ brought a change to the status of women in the early church, in the New Testament, and on from there. And this change came slowly. Um, they still, I'm sure, had the same diseases. They still had something like that. But there was a, a change that came in in how women's um, place in society, how their place in the church changed. In the Old Testament, Women were more or less considered property of their husbands, and with some exceptions, 
They existed primarily to bear children, to manage the household, often while their husbands were away for weeks or even months on, on business, sometimes at war, sometimes never came home. Um, it was left to his three or four wives to work out the household. It must have been interesting. The wife relied on her husband even for her spiritual well-being as well as her physical well-being. And it was the husband's job usually to present sacrifices at the temple, um, to atone for the sins. I don't know of anywhere that we read that the wife would have taken a lamb to the temple. Maybe it happened. Um, John, maybe you could help me out. Did the, did the wife ever take the sacrifice or was it always the man? Okay, then I must be pretty certain on that then, because John agrees. Um, but the, the women did, however, share if there were judgments against their husband. Uh, two examples, think of Achan, whose family died with him after it was found out that he had taken things he shouldn't have during the Israelite raid on Ai. And um, we also think of the, the men who falsely accused Daniel. They were thrown in the lion's den along with their wives and children as well. I've often wondered, especially in Achan's situation, um, when he brought home that stuff, did his wife approve of it? Or maybe was she the reason he brought it home? Was he trying to please her? Or did she just totally freak out and beg him to get rid of it? We don't know. Another one of those mysteries we don't know. Where did she, was she part of it or was she not? But either way, she did share his fate as well. But along with the coming of the Messiah and his plan of salvation, for the individual, there also came a change in the way that that individual would worship. No longer did he or she need to go through the local priest or even through her husband to worship God. And I want to look just as a kind of little bit on that. Hebrews 10, if you would turn there with me. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, having a high priest, capital letters, high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So in the Old Testament times, they had a high priest, and it changed every number of years, and only he could enter the most holy place, the holiest of holies, um, in the temple, the back part of the temple, the, the place where the rest of the priests could not enter, only, only the high priest could enter through that heavy veil and come into the direct presence of God. And it was something that was done, I think, only once or twice a year. And it was a very, very serious occasion. So Jesus' death, if we remember the account there, when he died, the, the veil in the temple was torn open. And he removed that curtain and gave all believers access to him. And he became our new and perfect high priest and interceder with a perfect knowledge, understanding of each of us, something the high priests in the Old Testament did not have. They were simply human, and they were imperfect as all humans were and are. So the, the significance of this is that 
Women in the New Testament era, including today, have the same equal rights and access to God as what the men do. And even more than men in the Old Testament, because they still have to go through a high priest, but the uh, women today can go directly. That's something we kind of maybe take for granted a bit today. But for the women in the early church, I think this was hugely significant. They no longer had that, that separation, if you want to call it that. Uh, much of Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth, his three years there, was especially to the women. And I think especially to those that were outcast by society. And he seemed to kind of make it a point to reach out to those especially. And I want to look briefly at just a few of those times during Jesus' ministry here. If we go to John chapter 4, if we go to John chapter 4, we read about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan lady at the, the well. Now, we know that the, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans um, had some Gentile mixed in, and because of that, the Jews rejected them. Most of the Jews uh, traveled around Samaria, which was kind of significant because it was a huge detour, especially if you were walking, to actually go around Samaria. But Jesus here chose to travel through Samaria with his disciples instead of going around it. And around lunchtime, they stopped at a well. Uh, the well was usually a very busy place, especially in the morning and the evening. Uh, the, the, the village ladies came with their water pots to fill, um, take it home for either cooking or for the evening cooking. But this was lunchtime, and so it was kind of unusual that he encountered a lady here at the well. And most likely was because she was trying to avoid um, all the other people that came. So John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 5, So he, Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being worried from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be lunchtime. The woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whosoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. But the water that I shall give him will become in, in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our, pro our fathers worshipped here on this mountain, and, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in the culture then, Jewish men did not speak much, if any, to women in public, um, even to their wives, I think, sometimes. Uh, certainly not to a Samaritan lady, and most definitely not to one who was known to be working on husband number six. Um, there again, the events behind that, we are left to, to wonder until we find out someday. But Jesus did speak to her. He took the time um, to answer her question about how and where to worship, a question that I think she posed to kind of get him off the subject of the number of husbands. And, um, but Jesus introduced himself as the Messiah that she said she was waiting for, and this caused her to run back to the city and tell her friends all that Jesus had said to her. And suddenly, uh, she wasn't so ashamed of her past, but she referred to it as proof that Jesus must be the promised one. She went back and said, hey, this man told me all that I did. All of a sudden, that was significant. Um, if we skip down to verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So this unnamed, um, unwanted lady, looked down on in her society, became the small spark that started the entire town on fire, simply because Jesus took the time to speak with her, to care about her life. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now when they sat down, um, they didn't sit around a table like we did. Another cultural difference there. They most likely had a very low table that they kind of stretched out on um, with their heads, of course, towards the table and their feet kind of sticking behind them. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet, anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them would love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, You would rightly judge. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So something compelled this woman to be so bold as to enter um, a Pharisee's house, uninvited, and to wash and anoint Jesus' feet. Now obviously with her reputation, that was probably the last place she really wanted to be seen is in the Pharisee's house. Uh, most likely she was breaking quite a number of Jewish laws. And I would think she'd want to stay as far away as possible. Um, and even what she did there was highly unusual and raised some indignation among those present. But Jesus then used this situation as an opportunity um, to those others who were present to teach a lesson in forgiveness and also in gratefulness, giving the example that she has been forgiven much, and therefore she is extremely grateful. Again, not given the specifics here, but obviously the lady saw that Jesus was her only means to a fresh start in life, which he did grant, and Jesus saw the sincerity of her heart, and he responded accordingly. And if we move on into the first three verses of chapter 8, immediately following here, we see a rather unusual group of people. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom, he had, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chuzza, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So while it was fairly common in those days to see a rabbi with his group of disciples, he would walk through town, his disciples kind of followed him, and from what I understand, the disciples were somewhat responsible for providing for him, um, you know, material-wise, food and whatnot. Those disciples never included women. So this was a, a very interesting um, group. Uh, they included the rabbi, Jesus, and his 12 disciples, but also a number of women as well. And so Jesus, again, was demonstrating the spiritual equality between men and women by including both in his little group that followed him. And we don't actually read of him calling the women, so I don't know how that all happened. And it does not appear they were involved in all the activities, say, like the Last Supper and stuff. But we do see a number of times of where there were women that followed Jesus and helped provide for his daily needs, same as what the disciples would have done. Whether it was the same ones or different ones, again, we don't know. But they certainly mark Jesus as being a very different rabbi from the rest of them at that time. I had to think maybe, maybe this mixed group was one reason why Jesus was so approachable by both the poor and the, the children, the young and old uh, alike, all kind of came to him. And it might have been more of this, if I may say, family setting that he presented by having the group that he did. He was showing the world by example that Christianity is not exclusively available only to certain people. But we often focus on the New Testament, um, the, the New Testament era opening up the way for the Gentiles, for the rest of us um, to be accepted as well as the Jews. But and it did that. But it also opened up the way for women, whether Jew or Gentile alike, to personally know the Savior. I think that's very significant here. Um, I mentioned Mary, the mother of Jesus, last time. Mary had the unique privilege of living in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Um, there were not a lot that would have bridged that time there. Mary was the only human who witnessed both Jesus' birth and his death. She saw him arrive as her baby boy and die as her Savior. And we see her appearance a few times um, during Jesus' ministry here. As in the New Testament era now, we saw her as a mother, which would have still been uh, in the Old Testament. So the first time here, uh, John chapter 2. I think this might be the first time she's mentioned during his adult life. I'm not certain on that. So anyway, John chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they, were, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twelve or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And, he, and they took it. And the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until last. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So questions again here. Uh, what prompted Mary to inform Jesus that the host ran out of wine? Um, who told her? How did she know? And was it simply a passing comment? Hey, they're, they're out of wine back there. Or was she implying that maybe he should do something about it? And by his response would kind of indicate that that's the way he took it. And why did she assume that he would or even could do anything? The Bible says this was his first miracle. And so she had not seen this before. Why did he begin with a miracle like this? And would he have turned the water to wine had his mother not prompted him? Again, I don't know. Um, was she expecting a miracle? I don't know. But her command to the servants, verse 5, um, was simply do as he said, as he says, um, pretty much indicating that she expected him to do something, indicating a complete trust in him. And we can try and spiritualize it, and that is true. But I also think it was simply a mother uh, relying on her oldest son in the absence of her husband to help out where there was a need present. Joseph was most likely gone by now. And I think she looked to him as, as simply um, being there to fill the need. And we see the, the close relationship with Jesus and his mother here. Uh, Mary knew of his entrance to this world. And I think she had a pretty good idea uh, what his exit from this world would look like as well. If we look at um, back in the temple, when she took him into the temple and Simeon held the baby Jesus, he indicated that uh, Jesus' exit from this world um, would not be nice and would affect Mary as well. So she, she knew what was possibly coming, knew his purpose, didn't know when all that was going to happen, and yet she still saw him as her little boy, possibly, uh, grown up now, and willing to take the responsibilities. And I don't know, did, did she in some way almost start him into his time of ministry here? I'm not sure. Just interesting questions there to speculate. Um, was she responsible for saying, okay, it is your time. It's time to do what you're called to do. 
We again see that relationship with Jesus and his mother when he's hanging on the cross. Um, he asked John to take care of her. So it appears that they were very close as family um, during, during his time here. So moving on, uh, Mary and Martha, different Mary here, were sisters. They were significant in that the Bible gives their names as well as records quite a few things that they did and said. And their account is told in John 11. Skip through here, read a few verses. John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he who loves he who you sorry, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, and the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, that, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And when he arrived, if we go on down to verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been, Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, was already dead four days. So even his delay was not enough to, to save him there. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So the three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were possibly the closest friends that Jesus had outside of his group of disciples. We read that he spent quite a bit of time there, uh, stopped by there when he was going through the area. And elsewhere we read as well that though the two were sisters, they were quite different. Uh, Mary stayed quite busy, I'm sorry, Martha stayed quite busy doing the things necessary to properly entertain guests, while Mary spent as much time as possible simply listening and learning. Now their brother was very ill, so their natural response, let's send for Jesus. They no doubt had seen his miracles of healing, and they expected, were hoping, that he would do the same thing for their brother. And instead, Jesus waits another couple days before making his way uh, to their home again. And as he and Martha discussed Lazarus' death and how Jesus' presence earlier might have prevented it, we see some very significant statements by Martha in verse 24 and 27. So in verse 24, she mentions a future resurrection. She said, yes, I know someday he will rise again. And I think many of the Jews kind of believed in that, although the how and where, uh, they weren't real clear how it was going to happen. But that was not an uncommon belief in that day, that yes, someday, somewhere, um, they will rise again. But then in verse 27, she directly acknowledges that Jesus is the one who will make that future resurrection possible. So we see here the ministry of Jesus was starting to sink into these people more than just his ability of healing them. They were starting to understand who he was, what his purpose was in coming to earth. And the fact that this statement was made by a lady um, shows that Jesus' goal in reaching out to 
both genders as being successful here. He came for both the men and the women, and we see here that she as well was accepting this as an individual um, for herself, that this was real for her. So God was becoming accessible to anyone, everyone who sought him. As we go on, we see uh, women becoming more and more involved in the essential roles in the early church. Um, we turn to Acts, which largely chronicles the happenings of the early church. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and terrible deeds which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter rose and went with them. And when they had come, they brought him to the upper room. All the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, knelt down, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when she had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So here we have, ignoring for a minute the, the miraculous deed that happened here of being um, brought back from the dead, uh, focusing on, on Dorcas or Tabitha's life here, uh, she was filling a very practical need. Uh, Christianity was, I believe, dividing families. In this, this culture, it would have been more the norm for the families to uh, look after their own widows, look after their own elderly, and provide for them. And instead, many were rejected when they chose to follow Christ, and so they needed to then rely on the church to provide the place of their family, even in their needs for their daily lives here. And so Dorcas, I believe, worked very hard in providing some of these necessary blankets and, and clothing and whatnot to those who were per, too poor, who, whose families did not provide for them. And the importance of what she did, um, we see by the number of people who showed up uh, weeping for, for her when she died. So when Peter raised her from the dead, I'm sure there was much rejoicing um, by those who depended on her, as well as the whole incident simply drew more attention to the power of God. In Acts chapter 18, we meet Aquila and Priscilla. I don't know if they got together because their names rhymed or not, but they do. Um, Acts chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So Paul, I'm sorry, one more verse. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So here's a husband and wife uh, team, if you want to call it that. Their names are, I believe, always mentioned together. If you hear one, you hear the other. And maybe they were childless, maybe they were simply older, children had left, we don't know that again. But they worked together as a team, and they learned from Paul. They lived with Paul for a while, uh, learning from him and just simply growing in their, in their knowledge and faith of, of Christianity as well. And then later on, uh, in verse 24 of the same chapter, 
they mentored a young man by the name of Apollos. So verse 24 of the same chapter, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, decided, when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, after, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So here we have what I'm going to guess is maybe a, a younger man, um, a very gifted man. He was well taught. He was a good speaker. I picture him as being the kind of person that people enjoyed listening to. And yet after hearing him, Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla realized that he lacked the full picture of the gospel. He taught John's message of repentance, but he did not have the full picture of what Jesus did on the cross. So instead of criticizing and condemning him, they quietly took him aside. They explained what was missing, and Apollos, to his credit, took what he learned and preached it in powerful ways that Aquila and Priscilla could not. Um, so, and yet, without that husband and wife team's uh, intervention in his life, he would have continued to proclaim an incomplete gospel. So by them working behind the scenes, both of them working with him, um, they reached a much larger set of people as well. Um, and we read you know, in other gospels how Apollos uh, was almost equal with Paul in the amount of people that he, he reached. And yet, that direction was, was established way back here by this husband and wife. And later on, they continued to open their home to home church, to individuals, and uh, Paul mentions them a couple of times. So another excellent example of a woman doing what she could, along with her husband, to help build the church. The last lady is Lydia. And her story is told in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 11. And this is on one of Paul's uh, journeys. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. We were staying in that city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went, out, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So we aren't told a lot about Lydia here, except for her profession. As a seller of purple, she would have worked with the elite, the wealthy class of people. I understand in those days the color purple came from boiling a certain kind of snail uh, for many days in giant kettles. It was a big, messy process, uh, a, lot of, a lot of time and effort involved, and supposedly it took as many as 250,000 snails to produce one ounce of purple dye. So obviously um, that made it very expensive and only the very rich 
could afford to wear clothing made of purple. So significant in that that was her profession, um, which meant that she would have been most likely some of the upper class of society. And yet uh, God called her as well. Interesting that the, the gospel was also reaching women of the upper class of society as well as the outcasts here um, that we read about earlier. So too often we tend to kind of prejudge uh, who God will call, who he will accept, but Lydia shows us that God's desire is, is very wide, open to anyone who would be able to, who would want to accept. Uh, he uses everyone, young and old, rich and poor, and Lydia then in turn opened her home to Paul and his companions and she shared with them what God had blessed her, um, shared yeah, with what God had blessed to her. So we kind of see this shift here from the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, from the Old Testament, um, with the coming of the Messiah here on earth, he granted equal opportunity to both men and women to follow and serve him. And no longer was it as much acceptable to simply treat women as property. And while that was culturally acceptable, um, that was not God's plan originally. And I believe Jesus restored, if I may use that word, what God had created man and woman back at creation. When he created them back then, he had given them specific roles. He said, you are to do this, you are to do, th to do that, and you are to work together. And over time, sinful man had kind of degraded that to where the woman was no longer even uh, able or allowed to fulfill her God-given role. But, but Jesus, in his, his plan of salvation, restored that to the way it was originally intended. Uh, both man and woman filling different but equal roles in building his kingdom. These opportunities are still with us today, still came today. God still calls everyone, uh, no matter who you are, to fulfill the role that he has planned for you. And while this role will probably differ from person to person, they are all equally important in God's eyes. With those thoughts, let's stand for prayer, and let's remain standing then for the final song. Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan that you have for each of us. We thank you that, look, that you look at each of us equally as important builders in your kingdom. We thank you that you have gifted each of us with the ability for, to fulfill that role. And we ask that you would grant us faithfulness and a trust in you as we seek to obey that calling. Guide and direct us as we go from here through the next week. Grant us safety until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.